plans for my crazy day. My packed commute. All those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. You are Locked On Jets, your daily podcast on the New York Jets. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Jets podcast for this Thursday, the 16th of March in the year 2017. I'm John B. from gangreennation.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoy this show, consider subscribing to it on iTunes or our audio boom. And if you really enjoy it, please uh, give it good ratings. We certainly would appreciate them. Well, today, uh, March Madness kicks into full gear. We've had a couple of games over the last two days, but today is the big day. It starts the... uh, major stretch where you you have game after game over this over these next four days particular particularly thursday and friday so remember to get your brackets in before your uh, noon eastern deadline today now as far as the jets go wednesday was actually a fairly eventful day we have a couple of pieces of news to break down so we will do that and then we will get into our traditional thursday mailbag segment the first piece of news is that hashtag Hightower Watch 2017 came to a conclusion, and it was the conclusion most of us were expecting. Linebacker Dante Hightower staying with the Patriots. He's not coming to the Jets. He had visited over the weekend. Reports indicated that the Jets made a very competitive offer for him for his services, but that Hightower was not inclined to take it. It's easy enough to understand why he is playing for a team that just won the Super Bowl. It's a tough sell to ask him to come to a team that was 5-11 and last season and might not be a whole lot better this year. The Jets were going to have to pay a premium to get him, and even then, it was going to be tough. It was going to be a lot to ask for, and ultimately, it was too much to ask for. Now, late in the game, there were stories that came out that the Jets did not really offer the reported mega deal 12 million dollars plus there were also reports that the jets withdrew their offer after hightower left his visit Uh, this could be a couple different things the first is that the original reports might have been inaccurate that's possible maybe hightower's agent was giving these reports to people saying that the jets made this big offer to try and get the patriots to increase their offer under the idea that If the Patriots think he's going to the Jets, he's going to a division rival, maybe they'll increase their offer to prevent that from happening. And from the Jets' standpoint, even if that's not true, even if the Jets didn't make that offer, it makes sense for the Jets to play along because even if they're not making the offer, the Patriots think the Jets are making a big offer and may increase the amount of money they're paying to Hightower. It certainly doesn't hurt the Jets. It helps the Jets because... Patriots have to use up more money against the salary cap. Now, no indication that happened. The other thing that it could be is that it might be, and we do have to note that all of these stories about the Jets lacking interest came out at the end of the process, around the time Hightower would have notified all the teams if there were multiple teams interested. So maybe it's the Jets trying to save face and pretending that they weren't part of it. We don't know. And possibly possibly it's a little bit of both. I think everybody kind of saw Hightower returning to New England. 
the, he visited the Steelers after he visited with the Jets, and there were reports that the Steelers gave him an ultimatum and told him that if he left without signing their offer, they were pulling it because he did not want they, the Steelers did not want the High Tower to use them as leverage. They only want they wanted to move on. They did not want to sit around and wait for High Tower when they could be searching other avenues to improve their team. They did not want to be frozen just waiting for High Tower. So if High Tower wasn't serious, they were pulling their offer, and you know that that also makes some sense. Ultimately, I had mixed feelings about the reported offer the Jets made. Now there are questions about whether the Jets actually offered him twelve million plus. We don't know, and frankly, I, I don't think we'll ever know for certain whether they did or not. I think Hightower really is a tremendous player. I think he's a blue chip talent. I think if you're looking as a fit, he's a above average player in almost every aspect of the game. He's a lot of people rate his pass rushing ability very highly. And if you know Todd Bowles, if Bowles has his way, he likes to blitz a lot in the A gap, which is the area between the center and the guard. And in his defense, the people who do that are inside linebackers like Hightower. So an inside linebacker who is effective at rushing the passer has a lot of value. And Hightower is good at the other aspects of his game also. Now, that said, when we're talking the $12 million range, that's we're getting into the area where that's what you pay a guy when you're building your system around them, the way Carolina has built their system around Luke Keekley. And even though this is the type of player you want in a Bulls defense, it's not really a cornerstone player the way a Keekley is in Carolina. It's more of the corner is because Bulls likes to blitz, which means you need corners who can hold up on one-on-one coverage on an island. So I'd have mixed feelings. Certainly would improve the team. Jets certainly need more blue chip talent on the roster. The price may have been a little high. So as much as I would have had mixed feelings if the Jets had signed Hightower to that deal, I also have mixed feelings with him not coming. I'm disappointed that the Jets did not get a player of his ability, but there is also a part of me that feels like it might, it's not the worst thing in the world that the Jets did not give him that contract. This was at the price it would have taken. It would have been a high risk, high reward type deal. So you can kind of see things from both perspectives. You can see why you might be a little disappointed that the Jets did not get him, but you can also see why Hightower going back to New England is not necessarily the end of the world. Now, in former Jets news, Darrell Rivas had a court appearance for the charges he faced in Pittsburgh, and he faces them no more as the judge dismissed all charges against him. I told you at the time he was charged that I was not going to comment on it, and that's because I'm, I think I'm pretty qualified when it comes to breaking down what happens on the football field, but when it comes to a legal case where I was for an incident, alleged incident where I was not present, I don't really have anything intelligent to add. I don't, I can't tell you what happened. Now, there were a lot of people who took a different approach and pretended that they knew what happened. So you can judge them accordingly. As far as this goes with the Jets, you have to remember that Revis's contract came with offsets. So the Jets are on the hook for $6 million guaranteed. But if he signs with another team, the Jets are off the hook for whatever amount that team signs him for. So if the other team signs him for $2 million, well, then the Jets only owe him $4 million because the 
two million is subtracted from the six million the Jets owe him. So anything that m- makes Revis more marketable could conceivably be good for the Jets. And I-, I don't mean to be overly flippant because this was a very serious situation. It was a very serious legal case, and the implications obviously were far more significant than football. But we are a show that talks about the Jets, so from that standpoint, this will the the fact that Revis is putting this behind him will possibly help the Jets a little bit financially if he ends up if he does end up deciding to continue his career and signing with another team and finally Austin Safarian Jenkins the Jets tight end was suspended for two games that's due to the arrest that happened near the end of his Tampa Bay career and actually led to the Bucks waving him and the Jets picking him up so Safarian Jenkins will be out for two games and I'm not necessarily going to talk about the suspension, but I think that his impact is perhaps overrated. I think people are assuming that he's going to step in and be a plus tight end, and I'm not necessarily sure he's such a lock. You have to remember this is a guy who, you look at his production through his career, it's not that great. Now, he does have ability. He does have good athletic gifts. That's the reason he was drafted fairly highly a couple years back. But... The problem with the Jets' tight end position, people want to blame it on Chan Gailey. Well, maybe Gailey did not like to use the tight end, but the big issue was the players on the roster. They Those guys just did not produce. And you cannot tell me that if Gailey had a better tight end that the production would be so low. So Safarian Jenkins gone for two games. It remains to be seen what kind of impact that has. I think a lot of people are assuming he's going to be a big-time impact player. You look at his track record, it's a question mark. I'm not saying it's impossible. Listen, he's a guy who does have ability, but I think people are counting on him a little too much. So that's those those were the big pieces of news for the day when it came to the Jets on Wednesday. Now let's head into your questions for our mailbag segment. This is a, uh, the reader questions from the comment section of gangreennation.com. So let's get it started with a question about Christian Hackenberg. Hello, John. Big fan of the podcast. Well, I already like where this question's going. I was hoping you might be willing to conduct a more in-depth analysis of Christian Hackenberg. He seems to be quite the polarizing topic of discussion, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about some of the criticism he's receiving, a lot of which seems to be based on the few snaps he took in preseason, comments from anonymous Jets personnel, and his college stats. As a Penn State alum, I am, of course, biased on this issue, but I am more familiar with the situation he withstood during his college years than most. Having watched all of Hack's college games, I can testify to his potential to be a great player in this league if he can put it all together. Perhaps by giving some further detail to his performance in college and the situation he endured while there, coaching change, system change, NCAA sanctions, and their effect on the roster that surrounded him. The video analysis by Brett Coleman posted before last year's draft was incredibly insightful and highlighted a lot of the pros and cons when evaluating Hackenberg. Something in, of this vein might help to ever, remind everybody of his true potential. The odds may be slim, but I'm holding out hope that we might have a diamond in our midst and not even know it yet. Well, that's a lot, a lot to chew on there. Uh, you mentioned Brett Coleman's video. Now, if you are a longtime listener of this podcast, Brett was actually one of our first few guests to discuss the video he produced on Hackenberg. And Brett produces a lot of great videos. Uh, you should check him out. He has this YouTube series, The Film Room. He did recently did one on O.J. Howard. He's done one on a 
couple of the big prospects in the, this year's draft class, like Jamal Adams. And they're very detailed. They're very good. And he did one where he was very complimentary of Hackenberg, very high on Hackenberg's potential in the lead up to last year's draft. And I kind of disagree with Brett on that, on this one, respectfully so, because Brett's a very smart guy. You know, I see some, I've seen some people say, when regarding some of Brett's other videos, well, he said that thing about Hackenberg, so I, I don't really buy into what he's, that's just, how silly can you be? Because you disagree with a guy on one prospect that invalidates everything a guy ever says. I deal with this too, where somebody, like when I make a draft statement, somebody says, well, you didn't like it when the Jets drafted Sheldon Richardson. It's like, well, I'm human. What, I can't get one wrong ever? <laughs> it invalidates, I, because I got one wrong once, I nothing I say is valid. I mean, that's just silly. Now, if you're looking for somebody to be high on Hackenberg, I'm afraid you came to the wrong place because I did not love that pick at the time. And to be honest with you, that would be an understatement. Now, we can start off with some of the positives. And I think it's kind of tricky because the podcast format does not really lend itself to in-depth analysis. Um, you know, I, I write for gangreennation.com. Maybe the next thing I should do is maybe see if I can put together a video or two because that might be a little more helpful for a venture like this. Now, there are some things to like about Hackenberg. Um, the first that really comes to mind was that he did play he did play pretty well under Bill O'Brien as a true freshman. And now, look, he wasn't spectacular, and I think people make him out to be the superstar his freshman year at Penn State. But that said, c comparing him to what you would expect out of a freshman, that was pretty, a pretty impressive job. And he actually showed an ability to go through progressions and again, uh, for a guy as young as he was to do what he did, it's pretty good, particularly in the Big Ten Conference. And particularly, as you mentioned, uh, they were dealing with NCAA sanctions from the horrific scandal at Penn State, which uh, limited the number of players, that they, the number of scholarships, which affected the talent around him. So there are things to like. He, you know, he has shown some some degree of understanding how to run a pro system in college. My issue, though, is that that was for one year. And when the Jets drafted him last year, a lot of people said, well, you know, two years ago, everybody said this guy would be the number one pick. Well, that may be true. But what you're saying is that with two, a couple of years ago, when you knew less about this guy, he was going to be the number one pick. Now that we have two more years of film, been able to study him for two more years, have two more years of knowledge, we've decided he's not the number one pick. So I don't think that's such a positive. They did have a coaching change at Penn State. And they did, again, the, the sanctions limited their scholarship, so they had issues, particularly on the offensive line. The, his offensive line was not good. But, uh, you know, I just can't, I can only buy so much into the excuses because the offensive line wasn't good. And as we all know, any quarterback's going to be worse under pressure than he will be with a clean pocket. But at the same time, being able to operate under pressure is a very important thing for a quarterback. You know, you can't just... You have to be. That's the thing that separates. That's one of the, one of the things that separates good quarterbacks from bad quarterbacks. There are lots of quarterbacks. If you give them a clean pocket, they're going to succeed in the NFL. Kevin Cobb would be an all would be a Pro Bowler if he if you just allowed somebody to operate from a from a clean pocket. You have to be able to understand how to slide, how to stand in there, and these were areas where Hackenberg struggled. Yeah, your production your productivity is going to go down when you're under pressure, but you can't fall. You can't be like a thirty percent thrower when you're under pressure either. 
So there are other issues. You know, people talk about the coaching change. A lot of people blame the new coach, James Franklin, for his struggles. They said Franklin's a terrible coach. Well, Penn State had a very good year this year right after Hackenberg left, and Franklin was the coach there. There were some mechanical issues. You, you may have seen one of them. One of the most prominent ones was mentioned in John Gruden's quarterback camp where Hackenberg, the new coaching staff under Franklin, when Bill O'Brien left, changed how Hackenberg set his feet on shotgun snaps. They also went to less of a pro-style offense. Well, my problem with the pro-style offense thing is that you'll hear a lot of how this guy played in a spread system in college, and that's, as a draft prospect, that makes him less likely to succeed, succeed running a pro offense. A spread system is typically not as difficult to run as a pro-style offense. And, yeah, the footwork, footwork things, maybe you can blame the coaching staff a little bit, and maybe you can blame the offensive line to some extent. But the other thing about that, the flip, the other side of that coin is that, that those are things you have to figure out. These are things that have been ingrained for two years. The footwork thing, if he's been doing it for two years, that means you pretty much have to teach him all, all the way over. You have to break those old habits. As far as the offensive line thing goes, well, he may have had a bad offensive line, but that in itself may be problematic. I think back to, you may remember, if you've been an NFL fan for long enough, you know Derek Carr, the quarterback with the Raiders. Well, his brother, David Carr, was the number one overall pick in 2002 from the Houston Texans, and they were an expansion team. They had a terrible offensive line, and it really just destroyed his career. And I remember I was at a preseason game between the Jets and the Giants in the stands in 2012, and at that point, David Carr was the Giants' backup quarterback. He was backing Eli Manning up, and I could not get over when he took a snap his first, the first thing he did was look at his look at the pass rush, which is you can't drop your eyes like that. You have to watch your receivers. You have to be able to trust your protection. But Carr was hit so many times early in his career that he just instinctively did not trust his protection. He took his eyes off his receivers and looked at the pass rush. So that's problematic in and of itself. And there are just so many issues with Hackenberg that let's say you were buying a house. Let's compare it to getting a quarterback to buying a house. This is not a fixer-upper. This is the type of house where you just knock it down and rebuild it. And it's I'll tell you, that's tough to do. And some, guy, you're able, some guys it works out for. Some total rebuilds actually work out, but it's very difficult to do in the NFL because the level of play is so high. It's really tough to, to improve that much. If you're, I mean, even a, good, even a good player, they usually start out pretty good and improve to great. You know, a great oh, sorry, a great player. Start usually starts out good because even a little improvement is not that easy to get in the NFL. If you can get a little improvement, you've really done something as a player. To improve from a guy who's just a total a total knockdown and build up again, difficult to succeed that way in the NFL. So it's certainly possible because, like, as I said, there were elements to his game that you liked. I mean, I think, uh, amazingly enough, and you mentioned the, the preseason game against the Eagles. Now, you can never judge a player on one preseason game. That's silly. And the other thing I'll say for him is he probably, out of the four, he may have been the least accomplished of the four, but he was probably the only guy who could get past his first read. I You never saw a lot of that from Fitzpatrick, Geno, or Petty. So that's something you can say for him. It's going to take a lot, though. It's it's not going to be an easy, easy trek for Hackenberg to become a quality starter in this league. So anything's possible. And look... 
it's certainly, you know, I've certainly been wrong on these before, but, you know, you talk about the anonymous sources. Well, the one thing to always pay attention to is not so much what people say or behind the scenes, what people say anonymously to the media, but how the team actually acts. And this year, the team acted like Hackenberg was not a guy they could put on the field in any situation, no matter how low leverage the situation was. And that's a little troubling for a rookie. Even if you know, even you get to the end of the year, and there's, I know everybody says that they're not going to play the rookie, but at some point, you know, your team's so bad it just doesn't make a difference. You want to get them game reps, and the Jets did not even feel they could do it, do that. So, you know, you talk about what anonymous people are saying to the media. Look what the Jets said. The Jets, the Jets, not playing Hackenberg is language in and of itself. So they're troubling signs. Uh, you know, you hope you hope you're wrong, but. I think at this point, I have to have a little, I have to have a healthy skepticism about Hackenberg. Next question. As with any sport involving a salary cap, success in the NFL requires that a team extract greater value from its players than the players are collectively paid. The most obvious source of surplus value is the draft or undrafted free agents. If you get a productive player on a rookie contract, that player will be underpaid for three to five years. In general, people assume that free agents will be overpaid and not return surplus value. But I don't believe this is a hard and fast rule. For a team that is rebuilding like the Jets, the team may have to overpay them for the first year or two, but put themselves in a position where they may reap surplus value in later option years. Since the Jets aren't going to compete in 17 or likely 18, this seems like a good trade-off. For example, the Jets tried to bring in Dante Hightower, but even if he wasn't overpaid, there was little chance of Hightower ever returning significant surplus value. However, the Jets could sign Hodges, Brown, or Minter, three free agents, all of whom have shown promise but not high towers consistently. If those players regress, they can be cut in, they can still be cut in a year or two, but if they maintain their most recent performance, they should return surplus value in years three plus. While it is no guarantee that Hodges, Brown, or Minter will live up to hopes, if you invest in cheaper, riskier players at each position group, aren't you increasing the probability of surplus value contracts in twenty nineteen and beyond? So that's a long question and it's a very intelligent question. And yeah, I, th- I you know, I think you hit on something. Winning a free agency means you find guys, you get guys whose value exceeds what you pay them. So certainly that, that there's a good point to that. And that's the reason the good teams are the good teams, that they find those bargains. A show last week I talked about Baltimore, what they did three years ago. I compared it to what the Jets did under that, that year with John Idzik, where they sat on all the cap space. And Baltimore got guys who really helped their team, like Justin Forsett, Owen Daniels, and Steve Smith. And they got them at very reasonable rates, and they provided a lot of value. Now... I still think you can, here and there, you know, you can't do it always because of the salary cap, but there's nothing wrong with bringing in a, a high-end guy on a big deal because, well, you can argue whether or not he's providing surplus value, but he's providing a lot of value on the field if he's a good player. But, yeah, you're, you're right. I think free agency, for the most part, requires a more cautious approach. It requires letting the market come to you more than a lot of teams do, not jumping at the first guy who's available, but waiting to see who the value guys are. Because after you hit that first wave of free agency, there's kind of a lull, and it becomes more of a buyer's market. Because if I'm looking for a linebacker, or if I'm looking for anything, for a corner, for a offensive lineman, the team that's desperate is going to go out there and make a deal, and make maybe make a bad deal, because they're so desperate that they're saying, I'll give you this because I need to get you. Well, Frequently, what happens is there's a player who's just as good or almost as good who will be available at a cheaper rate if you wait a little longer. And this is simple supplier demand because once, say, once a guy goes off the board, 
he's also filled a need for the team that's signing him. So there are less bidders for the services of the remaining guys. So if I need a guard, I go out and sign a guard for a big – another team goes out and signs a guard at a big price. That team doesn't need a guard anymore. So there's less demand. So the price goes down for the remaining guys. So you have to be patient, and you kind of have to pick your spots. And you have to evaluate. You talk about risk. Well, the smart teams are able to figure out which of these guys is going to fit in their system, and that's a big thing. You know, Sometimes a guy is not as productive in another system, but you run a system that fits their skill set better. Ask them to do things that they're good at and maybe not ask them to do things that they're not good at. So, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Next question. Give me one good re- – Leonard Fournette, give me one good reason the Jets don't draft this kid at six. I got nothing. I think Fournette would be an excellent pick for the Jets. I think one of the strange things about the draft is everybody thinks about need in terms of what position do I have the worst player at? Well, sometimes need can be viewed in a different context and the Jets need an identity on offense. And this is the kind of guy you can give the ball 15 to 20 times a game to. And he's the kind of guy who can make everybody better because he's, because even if you stack it in the box, I think this guy's going to be, and I'm sorry, I should not say that because in today's NFL, you don't see eight in the box a whole lot because teams use more spread formations. But put extra guys in the box, it simplifies the type of coverage the other team can run, opens up play action where you hold the linebackers, you can hit the pass over the top of them, limits the way they can blitz because you don't want some guy running out of his lane, you know, doing a twist or a stunt and leaving a running lane open. So there are just so many things Fournette can bring to the table. Now you've seen the Jets, they've shown some interest in actually going to a power, more of a power run offense. They've been interested in some free agent fullbacks. So, you know, maybe, maybe I was wrong to uh, dismiss the idea of potentially seeing eight men in the box. It makes a lot of sense for the Jets. And, I think particularly if you're going to a power run game, particularly if you're going to use a fullback from the standpoint that one of the few parts of Fournette's game that I don't love is I don't think he's got great vision. Well, if you stick him in a two-back set, he just follows the fullback. So you kind of take that off the table. So I I think he'd be a great pick. I think he'd be an excellent pick. Um, There's a follow-up to that question from somebody else. Taking it a first step further, would you draft Fournette? Foster or Lattimore at six. Foster is the linebacker from Alabama. Lattimore, the corner from Ohio State. Um, and then he mentions that he would be scared with Lattimore because he's injury prone. And D, references D. Milner. And I think anytime a player has an injury history, you have to be kind of scared of it. But at the same time, that's not fair to say because D. Milner failed with the Jets that Lad- Marshawn Lattimore automatically will fail. That's not fair. Every player is different. There are lots of guys with an injury history in college who put it behind them in the pros. So you have to keep that in mind. That said, I'm going for net. I'm not that high on Foster at six. I think six is too high for Foster. That's just my opinion. Um, I'm not a big Foster guy. Lattimore, I think, would be worth the sixth pick. But on the other hand, the, the thing that one of the things that kind of breaks the tie for Fournette for me is that this is a very deep corner class. So I still think I can get an excellent corner later on. So I'd go with Fournette. I'd, and I still, I like some of the backs who are going to be available later in this class, but I, I like, um, I like Fournette. I think that that you're not going to hear a complaint out of me. If uh, the jets draft Fournette at six. Next question. Listen to all of your podcasts, JB. They're great. Thank you. I appreciate that. And 
very nice of you to say. How much money do you think the Jets should spend in total this year? I think the Jets should be around $15 million below the cap. Glad they didn't get Hightower. Why spend to the cap limit when you don't have a top 20 quarterback? Roll over money when we do. Um, for when we do. Uh, and he, what he's referencing, if you're not aware, is that if you do not use salary cap space, you can carry that over to the next season. So if I Jets start, if the Jets finish the 2017 season with $15 million in salary cap space, they get an extra $15 million in cap space in 2018. That's the way it works. I'm not going to give you a total number. One of the things I think you just have to spend in a you have to spend in a way that makes sense. So if you have a guy that you think can be on still be an impact player three four years down the line, that's a guy that makes sense. If it's a guy, and I'll give you an example from the recent past is the the year the Raiders signed Michael Crabtree. They signed him to a one year deal. It was a year they were not expecting really to compete. At least they should not have been reasonably expecting to compete. But they brought him aboard because they said, you know what, maybe this guy makes sense. And Crabtree was at a point in his career where he could not command more than a one-year deal. So it was. Let's see. Let's see if this guy fits. Let's see if he messes with our young quarterback. Let's see if his skills work on our offense. And they did. And Crabtree ended up getting a bigger deal. So that's a you know, one-year deal that makes sense. A guy like David Harris, I think, makes sense because you want some leadership in the locker room. You want a guy who can show some of the young guys on defense how to play. You know, they want, want a guy who can teach them the system. So that's a guy that makes sense. You can get someone like that. I don't have a to- set dollar number in mind. I just want the free agent moves to make sense for the Jets. Don't, sign, don't go out and sign guys just to try and plug a hole. Don't sign an okay safety to plug a hole this year. Think long-term. You know, any guy that you signed has to have utility beyond this year. Even if it's, even if he's not going to be on the team, if he's going to be you know, a leader, somebody who can mentor a young guy, think beyond this year when you're, when you're talking about free agents. Either somebody who's going to help you in the future, somebody who may help you, who you want to get a look at. Have a long-term plan in free agency. Don't stick to a set number. Next question is about Deshaun Watson. I know you like Deshaun Watson. I'm liking him more the more I see out of him. He does a lot of things well, but to me, I see one glaring weakness. He only looks at half the field and ignores the other side. Do you see this also, and do you think it is a concern? Now, one thing. I've said I liked Watson. I never said I liked Watson with the sixth pick in the draft. So that's that's a key thing that I need to I need to make clear. Because I, I just don't think I, – I've really come to the conclusion that the Jets should not draft a quarterback at six. And it has nothing to do with me – not understanding the value of a quarterback. Look, you need a quarterback in this league. I just don't think any of these guys is worth it at six, particularly in a class like this where Jets really don't have much talent on this on the roster. They need to hit a home run with this six pick, and there are going to be home run players available. There are going to be star-level players available, and I just don't see it in the quarterback position. And I think Watson, when you're, you're, you're seeing something, you're definitely seeing something that's there. Watson makes a lot of half-field reads, and I think that that was by design. That's the way Clemson's offense runs, and that's one of the things. When you hear a guy did not play in a pro-style offense, that's one of the, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things people are talking about when they say that. So what you have is you have a guy scanning half the field and in a pass pattern. Usually you're trying to get a three-on-two or a two-on-one situation, whereas in the pros you'll have a guy who has to look at the whole field and you're trying to create a four-on-three or a five-on-four, so there are more moving parts. It's more complicated. Now, that said, 
not every play in the NFL is like that. There are plays where a quarterback will only have to scan half the field and it'll be a three-on-two or a two-on-one. And just because you have not ever done a full field read or you've just because you've done it sparingly, that does not mean you are incapable of learning. So that that's one of the keys. So I think when it comes to Watson, you want to surround him with a strong supporting cast where he's not necessarily going to have to make a ton of full field reads to uh, for the offense to run. What you want is you want good receivers where you can throw it up every now and then. You want a good back where who can break off a few big plays. And then you can install some of the half field reads that he makes at Clemson. And maybe he can learn a handful of full field plays. And then once he masters those, you can he he can add you can add a few more and then add a few more. And then you, gradually you shift more and more of the playmaking burden onto him. That's how I see it. So that's I actually wrote a pretty long article about this a little of a little while back on GangreenNation.com where I go into more detail on this. And yeah, that's one of the reasons I don't love him at six. Now, if he falls, I, I don't. Lo- I don't think he's worth the risk at six. Now, if he falls, he has one of those drops, and we've you know, like we've seen plenty of them through the years. Aaron Rodgers, uh, Brady Quinn, Geno Smith. He falls into the twenties. That seems like a spot where I could gamble on him. Maybe I start thinking about trading up, seeing what it would take. Because, I, I, again, I view these quarterbacks as I'm kind of at the poker table. I'm not willing to go all in. I'm not willing to commit my next three years of the franchise to Deshaun. I'm not that sold. But late first-round pick where I'm foregoing the chance to draft a good player in the second round by moving up, maybe giving up a few chances a few other good players, that's, a, that's something I might feel comfortable doing. Are the Jets fielding one of the worst teams in franchise history, and how can this be good for Bulls? I don't know. Uh, this team on paper certainly is not looking too great, but um, uh, we've seen some really lousy Jets teams through the years. So uh, maybe it's more of a commentary on Jets history than it is on this this year's the way this year's team's shaping up. But we'll have to wait and see. How could this be golden for Bulls? Well, it's probably not. But the one thing I will say is we heard of plenty about how the locker room there were issues there last year and how that may have contributed to the team's woes and there were lots of strong veteran personalities there we're gonna find out maybe todd bowles is better as a guy with young more impressionable players maybe he's a better developer of talent than a guy who can get get a uh, veteran locker room with strong personalities on the same page and that's just me guessing i mean bowles it was a it was a really disastrous year for bowles last year there's no two ways about it and Frankly, he's probably out of here if this team looks this bad again. I'm not saying that this team necessarily needs to make the playoffs. They may not need to have a winning year, but this year cannot be as much of a disaster as 2016 was. If he loses control and lets this thing spiral out of control, he's in a lot of trouble. So, And certainly not having talent on your roster is a step one on that path, so we'll see. If he can show that he develops young players, maybe the Jets beat expectations a little bit. Maybe they're not this bottom-of-the-league team, and that'll make a lot of people upset, the tanking crowd. That'll make you upset, I know, if you want to tank. But I, you know, I'm reaching. This is, You'd rather have a good team than not have a good team. There are a few things that could be promising for him, but, yeah, look, it's it's not a, not an ideal situation for a head coach. Next question deals with Eric Ducker's production after significant injuries. 
Hi, Jan. John, as a new fan of the show, I wanted to say thank you for all the work to bring us new content every week. Also, on a future episode, could you please send a shout out to your listeners in Australia? Now, I'm going to say, hold on a second. I gave a shout out to our listeners in Australia on Monday. And I said, when I first read that, I said, wait, didn't I do that? And yes, I did. So let me replay what I said on Monday. So today I'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in Melbourne, Australia. We are uh, going through the stats. Uh, now, Melbourne, we don't have as many listens as we do in Hong Kong, but uh, we actually have a decent number of listens uh, from Melbourne and from Down Under. So thank you guys for listening, Down Under, and thank you no matter where you are in the world for listening. Now, to be fair, I only gave a shout-out to our listeners in Melbourne, Australia. You may not be from Melbourne, so let me give a shout-out to everybody who's listening to this show from Down Under. Really appreciate you uh, listening from all the way across the world. It's actually been something I've always wanted to do was go down to the Australian Outback and tend bar for a few months. I just think it would be an incredible experience. And I've actually come close a couple times to doing that. And then something's happened in my life that's prevented that from happening. Um, and it, it, these were good things. These were just great opportunities that happened to come about right before I was going to make arrangements to do that. I just would really love the life experience. The uh, great college basketball coach, Al McGuire, once said that if you really want an education, go 10 bar for six months and go drive a cab for six months after you graduate college. And I really believe in that. So one of these days I'll get to do that. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for listening from Australia. Now, as for your question, can you give an example of players from any team who had similar injuries and surgeries to Decker? I'd like to know if these players were able to make a successful return to the NFL or if they were never able to bounce back and be as productive as they were before the injuries. I'm a little concerned about Eric Decker's future production, specifically the hip injury, the hip surgery, a torn labrum. This is not to be underestimated. With the roster looking as weak as it currently looks on paper, we are really counting on some good production out of Decker, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on his return. Now, first of all, I don't have a medical background, so take that for what it's worth. Second, I think you have reason to be concerned the guy's coming off not just one but two serious injuries one with his shoulder one with the hip now degree you know the degree of the injury can vary but one example of a guy who has come back from a torn hip labrum is actually our old friend and Decker's old partner Brandon Marshall who had that injury when he first got to Miami and he's obviously put together a great career so certainly seems possible but I understand your concern so that's you know, that's our, a pretty good uh, guy to turn to, I guess, if we're talking about Decker. Next question was emailed to me, and it deals with the quarterbacks. So we had Sanchez, Gino, and Fitzpatrick calling the shots for the last seven years. Where is Sanchez? Should we take him back on a cheap deal for old time's sake? I have no interest in a lot of the free agent this year. Oh, boy. <laughs> Or we're really to that point where we want Sanchez back. So Sanchez uh, was traded from Philadelphia to Denver last offseason after Peyton Manning retired. Denver looked at a few different guys. They first of all tried to re-sign Brock Osweiler. And sometimes you just sometimes it's better to be lucky than good because they ended up winning by not re-signing Osweiler. They ended up winning by Osweiler turning them down. 
Uh, so Sanchez was in Denver. He was supposed to be the starter and then really lost the job in preseason to Trevor Simeon. They cut him partially for finances, and he actually caught on with Dallas after Tony Romo got hurt. Dak Prescott went into the starting lineup, but with Romo out, Dallas needed another quarterback to back Prescott up. So Sanchez went there, and Dallas will need a backup because they because Romo is on his way out of town. And truthfully, for where Dallas is, Sanchez is actually a pretty good guy to have around Prescott because he was in a similar spot early in his career. He was the young guy starting on a team that was trying to win, and it was a high-profile team. Sanchez was in New York, now Prescott's with the Cowboys. So Sanchez is actually a pretty valuable guy to have around Prescott, and very few teams have a quality backup quarterback, and I'm not sure Sanchez is a quality backup quarterback. He's definitely not a starter. He's not one of the 32 best guys, but he's definitely one somewhere between 33 and 64. So, you know, he's a good fit as a backup quarterback. As far as the Jets go, uh, no. Let's turn the let's keep the page turned on that one. If we were going to do things for old times' sake, there were some better guys. You could have kept Mangold. You could have even kept Rivas. There were better ways to go about that. Jets need to look to the future. Enough with the past. The past is gone. Just the past, we need to think ahead. So I'm going to be a no on that one. Um, all, with the total disregard to secondary and free agency, how many picks do you see Mike McCagnan using on the secondary in the draft? I think this is a very good draft for the secondary. I'll tell you, a guy I would not be upset to see the Jets take at six, and this is might be the one of the few guys, this is one of the few guys I would take over the aforementioned Leonard Fournette is Jamal Adams. I think he's a tremendous talent. And there are two big-time safeties in this draft, Jamal Adams out of LSU and Malik Hooker out of Ohio State. For me, Adams is the number one safety. First of all, I think he's a more complete player. Hooker is more of just a guy who's going to play the deep zone, play some robber coverage. But second is... I, th- I don't think the ceilings are that different between Adams and Hooker. I think they are both they both have a star-level player ceiling, but I think Adams' floor is much higher. I think Hooker is high-risk, high-reward because he takes some brutal angles when he's playing the run. He's, he's not as good as he is against the pass. He is brutal against the run right now, so that's a part of his game that's going to have to develop. So I would not mind seeing Adams in the first round, and after that, there are lots of good corners available, so... I'm not sure it's necessarily a function of need because from this well, obviously the secondary is a need, but Jets have need everywhere. But the, and that that's the key is the Jets have needs everywhere. But just based on the depth of this class, I could definitely see the Jets taking multiple players for the secondary. Next question deals with quarterback options. What are the best quarterback options for the Jets? And names are listed: Geno Smith, Colin Kaepernick, Jay Cutler. Pick number six, Bryce Petty slash Christian Hackenberg, Kirk Cousins trade. Do you see any other options? A great podcast, by the way. More daily, even on weekends, go 24-7. I appreciate that, but you got to give me the weekends off. <laughs> Thank you, though. I, I certainly would rather you, you want me to do weekends than for me to do less podcasts. So I, I appreciate that. And your list pretty much summed up how ugly the options are i mean there are just no good options out there just don't spend a lot of money um i would say geno smith actually might make the most sense i I can't believe i'm saying this but 
you know, you can at least come up with a rationale for how he might improve because he struggled so much early in his career, but he had so little around him. And maybe after two years on the bench, you remember he was going to get his chance last year starting with the Baltimore game, but then he got hurt. So I maybe Gino, if not, I might just go with Petty and Hackenberg because I don't think any of the, I don't think any of the other options can play. And I actually think the book is written on almost all of those guys. So I just don't see where there's the upside for anybody else. It would be one thing if you had a team where you were just looking for a guy who was a caretaker, or even a guy who could just make a few plays. I think it's just a lot to ask any of those guys to come in and have, have success with the Jets. And the only guy you, who really would come to mind as a viable option would be Cousins. But I don't want to trade what it would take to get Cousins. I don't believe in him enough to give him the type of contract it would require. So, man, these are bad options, I guess. Reluctantly, Gino. If not, then Hackenberg, Petty. I guess that's how. I guess that's where I'm going. And our last question was emailed to me. Hey, John B., been listening to the podcast since week one, and it's been great so far. Well, thank you. And I want to make it clear that when I say that the way to get on this show, the way to get your question answered is to praise the podcast, I want to make it clear that's a joke. I'm just playing around when I say that. But I do genuinely appreciate the compliments to the show. It does mean a lot. So thank you. And thank you to everybody who said nice things about the podcast. Just an opinion question. How would you feel if the Jets traded down far enough to get another second rounder this year in return? This would ultimately be to pick up McCaffrey instead of Fournette and then using both second round picks to grab two corners in this corner class. I think absolutely it makes sense to trade down because this is such a good class. Not just a corner, but in general, there's a lot of talent in this class. So you can acquire an extra day two pick. Well, first of all, by trading down... You're not taking yourself out of the discussion to land a really top-notch first-round pick, but then you're giving yourself the chance to add another really good player on day two. Now, the one thing I will say is I'm not sure McCaffrey is the substitute for Fournette. I think McCaffrey is more a substitute if you want to draft Dalvin Cook. He's going to be good in the receiving game. He's uh, you know kind of shifty. And I'd like them, but look, I like a lot of the backs in this year's class. I think McCaffrey's going to be a really good pro, too. Now, if you're looking for a Fournette replacement, a guy I might have my eye on, and I'm not sure you take him in the first round. Maybe you take a corner in the first round and take this guy instead with your with one of your uh, new, one of your second-round picks. is a foreman from Texas. I really like this guy. Um, I think... I don't love a lot of people have compared him to Le'Veon Bell and there, there are some similarities there. The reason I don't love the comparison is that he's not as dynamic. He's not going to be as polished of a receiver. He's not going to be that same type of threat. He's not that type of complete back, but there are some similarities there. I, I do think there are some similarities there. It makes some sense uh, from the standpoint that, well, first of all, Bell was a guy who dropped some weight after he got to the pros and, Foreman's a big guy. If he drops a, a little weight, he'll still be big, but he can make himself a little more agile. So from that standpoint, Foreman's also a very patient runner. People think of Bell as the ultimate patient runner. Now, 
I got to be honest, this is kind of a superficial comparison. It's not a, the greatest comparison. I don't think it's a one-to-one match, but there is some overlap there. So that's that's what I'll say. But to answer your question, yes, I think it does make some sense. And with that, we'll call it a day on our podcast. Thanks for listening to this show. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast. It's part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, John B. I'm right with gangreennation.com. If you enjoy it, consider subscribing and giving it good ratings on iTunes and Audio Boom. Until next time, take care, everybody. Is democracy in danger or decline? Condoleezza Rice, William Galston, and Carlos Gutierrez and others take on this question in the fall edition of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Surveys show Americans place less trust in institutions like the media and business. Others contend America has faced far more challenging periods and emerged strong. Leading policymakers, Bush Institute experts, and respected journalists take on this debate. Read about it at bushcenter.org slash catalyst.